of 1986's masterpiece, Stephen King's grand thesis on horror and the magic of childhood, the book that either gave you a phobia of clowns or reinforced it, the one that made you think twice about walking past a sewer grate, the one that made you remember why you hated spiders and why you loved your childhood friends, the one that changed a pronoun forever, a novel that is oftentimes the answer if you ask a Stephen King fan what their favorite book is. The platform upon which performs Stephen King's most enduring, most iconic, most terrifying villain. His final statement on monsters and magic, on our place in this world, on life, death, guilt, ghosts, sacrifice, friendships, marriages, responsibility, long-lost loves, the past's effect on the present, the present's relationship with the past. Today, ladies and gentlemen, join me as I begin a month-long vacation to Derry, Maine, the setting for what is arguably Stephen King's greatest novel, and the jewel in his crown of horror. Of course, the novel of which I speak is Stephen King's It. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes of the Stephen King cast, you'll know that, for me, this is the book that started it all. Um, I've been thinking about this, uh, and, you know, this is really my, my sixth, possibly seventh time rereading this book, um, but it began for me in sixth grade, and at this point, the movie had come out. I was aware of the movie. I had not seen the movie, but just seeing commercials for the movie on ABC, it made me want to read the book. It made me want to watch the movie. Something about seeing the kids, seeing this terrifying clown, I was hooked, as many kids my age uh, were. And I distinctly remember the the day that I started reading it. I had borrowed it from my best friend who actually let me, he, he gave me the book back uh, recently so I could reread it, the exact book that, that I read the, the first time around, um, which was, it was a form of time travel, really. But I remember I, I got out of school. It was a half day. I went bowling with friends. I came home, I walked around the block for a little bit. It was in March. It was that time of year in New England when you, you get you start to get a, a glimpse of what spring is going to be, but winter doesn't really want to give up its hold yet. So it was just in that in-between stage. And there was some thaw. It wasn't as cold as it had been. Uh, the ice was starting to melt. I went home, I started reading it. And six days later, I was done. And six days later, I, I was set on a path that leads me here today. Uh, I'm now the host of the Stephen King cast. Up until that point, I had been a reader. You know, I, I, I've always been a reader. I always used my imagination. 
but the books that I had been reading were, you know, kids' books. And this was my first time reading an adult novel. Uh, and when I was in sixth grade, the, the thing that that just struck me, and I didn't know the word for it, but the word was authenticity. The authenticity of Stephen King's ability to write children. Because I was the age of the losers uh, in, in the novel, and it felt true, it felt right in a way that I hadn't experienced before in novels, in books. And I know when I read that what storytelling could be, what books could do. As Stephen King loves to, to state, there's a quote that, that floats around the internet a lot that, that gets bounced back and forth because it's so powerful. It's, books are uniquely portable magic, and it's certainly true. And this was the book for me where I discovered that. This was a door uh, that I walked through, and I haven't looked back since. And I believe that everyone is one book away from becoming a lifelong devout reader and my level of readership it was promoted I guess I went to the next level with this book like I said I've been reading kid books but this was this was a whole new ball game for me and the decisions that I made in my life after that you know with, with my career and, and just who I am I, I don't know if it really would have been the same hadn't I if I hadn't discovered uh, what reading could be and I owe everything to the experience of reading this particular novel. And of course, you know, I mean, it, it, it's reading in general what it did for me, but of course it, it began my love affair with uh, the Stephen King universe. So, like I said, I've read this about six, seven times, and um, every time I, I, I still I love coming back to the town of Derry to experience this story. I'm going to give my final thoughts um, in about a month. That's how long it's going to take to get through this this review. Um, but I will share my final, final thoughts on, on it and where I go from here. Now, as I've said before, everything, if you've been listening to the podcast, uh, everything that, kid, that, that King had written Prior to this, it, it comes to a head with this novel. You know, as I've stated in earlier episodes, it functions as the end of the first phase of King's career. A very thrilling, touching, poignant, terrifying roller coaster ride of love, death, magic, and childhood that has been seen in previous works and function almost as a rough draft for the, the final copy that, that becomes this particular novel. I mean, we've seen the magic of childhood. That's something that I'm clearly going to be speaking about in length. But the magic of childhood really was first seen in the body. And the fact that we've already read the body not only serves to examine an author's patterns, but more importantly helps to reinforce the nostalgia of the novel. Just like the adult characters in It, we have memories of these times and this era because we've experienced them just as the characters have because we have read the body which functions as a prototype for it we see the the encroaching adulthood symbolized by the death of a loved one as seen in the body Gordy Lachance from that novella is very clearly a rough draft of Bill Denbro 
Both brothers die. Both parents turn into their own grief and forget about their living son. Both grow up to be writers. Um, so the reading the body very recently, whose adaptation, Stand By Me, comes out the same year as it, keep in mind. Um, this was something that was very, very much on my mind. Uh, the, the child hero, as seen in The Shining, The Body, Salem's Lot, comes back here. The evil location, as seen in Salem's Lot, The Shining, and Pet Cemetery, is expanded to an entire town. Um, in Salem's Lot, we have the Marston House. In the... Um, Shining, we have the Overlook Hotel. In Pet Cemetery, we have the Micmac Burial Ground. So he takes all of this and he expands it to encompass an entire town. So it's it's like Salem's Lot magnified. Um, clearly, it's the supernatural threat, um, as seen before in Salem's Lot, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Christine. We have a, uh, a time period, um, 1957 and 1958, um, this is a time period that we have seen before with the body. Uh, we have battling racism. Now, this hasn't been outwardly expressed in his other works, but King has touched upon racism specifically by creating foul racist characters in order for us to root for the hero that much more. Um, racism is something that King clearly feels strongly about. And with this novel, he really pushes it to the forefront more than he had before in, in other novels. Childhood versus adulthood and children versus adults. Um, this was seen before in The Body. Uh, the idea and the concept of the bully, which we've seen most famously in Carrie, but sometimes they come back, and The Body. Um, and I, I think that this novel, more than any one of Stephen King's works at this point um, embodies the, the philosophy of Stephen King, uh, who, as you know, if you've listened to this, I have described as being a very optimistic and hopeful writer. Um, and the reason I say that is because his characters find strength in one another to combat a growing evil. We saw that in uh, Salem's Lot, Right, um, We have seen it in The Stand, which I haven't covered yet because I'll be covering the unabridged edition. Um, we will see it with the Dark Tower series when the Cotet forms. So this is something that, that he believes in, you know, people coming together. Um, and, and once you find that community, you have the strength of that community. And it's such a strong belief in the other. And, and that is the, the heart of this novel. I mean, the only, the only thing that's really missing in this book, um, well, I mean, basically, if I had never read it, and I knew that this was the culmination of everything he's been working on thus far, and you asked me what to expect, I would have told you that I would put down good money that there's a character that's battling dependency issues, um, but we don't see that here. Um, we'll, we'll see it soon enough um, in the Tommyknockers, um, but, but we, we don't see it. We don't see it here. So, ask anyone that was a kid around the time of 1990 and younger if they've seen It. The chances are that the answer is yes. Fondness for the movie will vary depending on the viewer, but one thing is clearly universal here. Everybody remembers Tim Curry as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. I'm going to review the movie in a separate episode 
and throw sacrifices at the altar of that man. But now I will say that if it wasn't for his performance to spread this character to the masses, the book wouldn't be what it is in our culture. And whoever takes over the role has very large clown shoes to fill. Because I don't know if everyone knows out there that if you're listening, but New Line Cinema will be um, producing a, a two-part uh, It movie uh, directed by Corey Fukunaga, the director of True Detective on HBO. Now, since this book came out, The Evil Clown has been a staple of the horror genre. Just go to any store during Halloween and you'll find a number of scary clown masks. Go to any haunted house or haunted hayride during those months and chances are at some point you'll be chased by a lunatic dressed as a clown. Now Stephen King didn't invent the evil clown, but I believe that he did popularize it and made it an iconic staple of the horror genre. Not just the horror genre, but pop culture. And in this kingdom, Pennywise reigns supreme. Since the release of It, You'll find clowns in the following movies, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Clown House, The Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses. There's even a zombie clown in Zombieland. There are a couple of contributions to pop culture that, that predate Pennywise, including John Wayne Gacy, Batman's Villar, the Joker, and the clown toy from Poltergeist. Now, despite the fact that they predate Pennywise, I'd still argue that Pennywise is the reason why there's an idea that clowns are terrifying. And I believe that Pennywise is the blueprint upon which all other evil clowns since have then been built. Now, like I said, this is a great time, a great time to reread this book. Like I said, uh, it has been a topic in the pop culture conversation of late with the news that the director of 2014's most talked about show, True Detective, Corey Fukunaga, will be helming the two-part theatrical adaptation. The remake is going to start shooting this summer, the summer of 2015. Depending on how long shooting and post-production takes, we could potentially see this movie between 2016 and 2017. Now, I would say that it would be wise to hold off until 2018. Why? The first adaptation of It aired in 1990. If the Cory Fukunaga remake hits theaters in 2018, it means that it will have been 28 years since the original ABC miniseries. From a metatextual context, it would work wonders for the resurrection of Pennywise the Dancing Clown, that the movie would take on its own recreation of the cycle that is one of the DNA strands of the clown himself. So I just want to break down how this is going to work. I'm already 14 minutes in, and I haven't even begun. Because of the length of this particular novel, because I believe that it does signal the, the end of the, the first phase of Stephen King's career and it's, the, the, it's where everything comes to a head, I had a lot to say. So we will be spending quite some time on this novel. So I, what I'm going to do here, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary and then I'm going to read the first mm -hmm. section uh, of the, the novel. Well, not, I'm not going to read the first section, but I'm going to share my running commentary and analysis of the first section of the novel, and I'll pick it up next week, and I will conclude the, the novel with um, a breakdown of the themes and the Stephen Kingisms that are present within the novel. So to begin, today, I am going to read the Wikipedia summary so that I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. Now, a note on the Wikipedia summary here. 
at the top of the page, if you go to Wikipedia, there's a disclaimer. This article has multiple issues. Now, if you're familiar with the other Wikipedia summaries that I've read on the Stephen King cast, you're going to notice that something's different here. So this is what Wikipedia says. 1957 to 1958. In October 1957, an evil shape-shifting being known only as It awakens in the town of Derry, Maine. Taking the form of a clown named Pennywise, it lives in the sewers under the town and emerges through places connected to the sewer system, from which it preys on children and takes the form most frightening to them. Because most children think a monster would eat them, it also consumes their remains. When six-year-old George Denbro's paper boat is swept into a storm drain, it waits until he reaches the drain to get the paper boat, then takes his arm and rips it off, leaving little George Denbro in the streets to bleed to death. The following June, new resident, so we have some issues here, resident, I should say, Ben Hanscom is harassed by a gang of bullies led by Henry Bowers. On the last day of school, he hides from his tormentors in the Barrens, where he befriends Eddie Kasprak, whose mother has convinced him that he has asthma, and Bill Denbro, George's elder brother. The three boys later befriend fellow misfits Richie Tozier, Stan Uris, with whom they are already friends, Beverly, whom they're already friends with, and Mike Hanlon, and call themselves the Losers Club. All have encountered it in various forms. Ben as a mummy, Eddie as a leper, Bill as George, Richie as a werewolf, Stan as its victims, Beverly as voices and gouts of blood from the sink, and Mike as a flesh-eating bird, and link it with a series of murders. Imitating the image of American Indians using smoke holes to have visions, Ben makes the makeshift smoke hole by which the losers discover how it came to Derry. Bill then discovers the ritual of Chud, which he hopes will kill it. A few days later, Eddie is hospitalized after an attack by Henry Bowers and several members of his gang. Spying on them, Beverly witnesses one of the bullies, Patrick Hockstetter, kidnapped by It. Later, the losers discover a message from It written in Patrick's blood. After Eddie is released from the hospital, Ben makes two silver slugs. The losers return to the house on Nabolt Street, where Eddie was attacked by the leper, and Richie and Bell were chased away by Richie's werewolf, and it attacks the losers in werewolf form, primarily focusing on Bill, but is driven away by Beverly's slingshot. It manipulates the mind of Henry Bowers, making him kill his father and providing him with a switchblade to kill the losers. Henry recruits his two closest friends, Victor, Vic, Chris, and Reginald Belch Huggins and follow the losers into the sewers. Under Derry, it attacks the Bowers gang in the form of Frankenstein's monster, killing Vic and Belch. Henry is framed by it for the child murders. Bill enters the monster's mind through the ritual of Chud and discovers its true form in a mass of floating orange light, or deadlights, which he repels, and the losers swear a blood oath to return to Derry if it resurfaces. 1984 to 1985. In July of 1984, three youths throw a gay man, Adrian Mellon, off a bridge. They are arrested for murder when Mellon's mutilated corpse is found, though they didn't mutilate him. One of the murderers claims that he saw a clown kill him underneath the bridge. When a string of violent child killings hit Derry, Maine, now the town's librarian and the only one of the losers club to remain in Derry, Mike, calls up his six friends and reminds them of their childhood promise to return. Bill is now a successful horror writer living in England with his wife, Audra. 
Beverly is a fashion designer in Chicago who has married an abusive man named Tom and is regularly beaten. Eddie has moved to New York City, where he runs a limousine rental company. Richie lives in Los Angeles and is a professional disc jockey using his talent for voice imitation. Ben is now thin and a successful architect living in Nebraska. Stan is a wealthy accountant residing in Atlanta, Georgia. An account of each person's reception to the phone call is given. Stan, who is implied to be the only one other than Mike who remembers the summer of 1958, which is not true. He, he remembers a lot at, at when he gets a phone call, but he does not remember. So that's one of the issues of, of Wikipedia. Cannot face going back to face it and commit suicide in the bath. Tom refuses to let Beverly go and tries to beat her, so she lashes out at him before fleeing to her friend. The others' reception are fairly uneventful. Five of them return to Derry with only the dimmest awareness of where, of why they are doing so, having almost completely blocked out virtually every aspect of their childhood. The remaining losers meet for lunch, where Mike enlightens them to the apparent nature of it. It awakens once, roughly every 27 years, for a 12 to 16 months at a time, feeding on children before going into slumber again. The group decides to kill it once and for all. Later, many of them witness manifestations of it. Three other people are also converging on the town. Audra, who wants to help Bill. Tom, who plans to kill Beverly. And Henry Bowers, who has escaped a mental institution with help from it. Mike and Henry have a violent confrontation, but Henry escapes. Henry, with the guidance of it, is transported to a hotel to attack Eddie. In the ensuing fight, Henry is killed. It appears to Tom and orders him to capture Audra. Tom brings Audra to its lair. Upon seeing its true form, the deadlights, Audra becomes catatonic and Tom drops dead in shock. Audra is left alive in its lair. Bill, Ben, Beverly, Richie, and Eddie find out that Mike is near death and realizes that they are being forced into another confrontation with it. They descend into the sewers. While in the sewers, the remaining losers use their strength as a group to send energy to a hospitalized Mike who fights off a nurse that is under the control of it. It appears as George, but Bill overcomes the illusion. They reach its lair and Bill and Richie engage it in a ritual of Chud again. Richie rescues Bill from the deadlights and manages to injure it. Eddie saves them, but is killed in the process. Beverly stays with Eddie and the traumatized Audra who is found alive. Bill, Richie, and Ben follow it when it retreats due to injury. They discover that it has laid eggs, which are about to hatch, but Ben destroys them all while Bill and Richie hunt down it. Bill crushes its heart between its hands, finally killing it. At the same time, the worst storm in Maine's history sweeps through Derry and the downtown area collapses. Mike concludes that Derry is finally dying. The novel ends with the losers returning home and gradually forgetting about it, Derry, and each other. As a sign that it really is dead, Mike's memory of the events of that summer also begin to fade, much to his relief. Ben and Beverly leave together. Bill is the last to leave Derry. Before he goes, he takes Audra, still catatonic, for a ride on his bicycle silver, hoping that they can beat her catatonia. They succeed, and the story ends. Now Wikipedia goes on to uh, discuss the, the, the characters, so for the sake of the fact that the characters are of the utmost importance to the story, I'm going to read these summaries as well. 
William Bill Denbro is considered the leader of the group as he wants to avenge the death of his younger brother George. He feels partly responsible for his death as it was he who made George the boat and sent him outside to play with it. He has a bad stuttering issue, which his mother attributes to a car accident that occurred when he was three years old. However, the issue got worse after George's death, and it is implied to be psychosomatic rather than physical. He is the most determined and resourceful of the losers, and is the one who both in 1958 and 1985 confronts it in the realm of Chud and eventually destroys it. As an adult, he becomes a successful writer and marries film star Audra Phillips, who bears a strong resemblance to Beverly. Benjamin Ben Hanscom. Ben is a highly intelligent boy who, before joining the Losers Club, often spent his free time reading at the public library. He is also obese, and due to this has become a frequent victim of Henry Bowers. His mechanical skills become useful to the Losers from making two silver slugs to building an underground clubhouse. He develops a crush on Beverly Marsh, and the two leave Derry together after the 1985 defeat of IT. As he grows up, he sheds his excess weight and becomes an internationally renowned architect. Beverly Bev Marsh, later Rogan. The only female in the group, she is tomboyish. She is a tomboyish redhead on whom each of the boys have a crush at some point in the story. She is from the poorest part of Derry and is frequently abused by her father. In 1958, she develops a crush on Bill Denbro. Her skill with a slingshot is a key factor in battling it. As an adult, she becomes a successful fashion designer in Chicago, but endures several abusive relationships culminating in her marriage to Tom Rogan, who sees her as a sex object and disapproves of her chain smoking, using it as an excuse to beat her up. She subsequently departs Derry with Ben following the death of her husband, who was used by it to capture Audra. Richard Richie Tozier, known as Trashmouth. Richie is the loser's most lighthearted member, always cracking jokes and doing impersonations or voices, which prove very powerful weapons against it. He is too intelligent for his own good, and channels his boredom and hyperactive wisecracking to the point of getting into trouble. His flippant remark to Henry Bowers leads to almost getting beat up by Henry and his friends. He is the most devoted to keeping the group together as he sees Seven as a magical number and believes the group should have no more, no less. In adulthood, he is a successful disc jockey in Los Angeles. As the DJ, he uses his once annoying and unrealistic voices and one, as one of his main attractions. He has bad eyesight and wears thick glasses as a child, but changes to contact lenses as an adult. Edward Eddie Kasprak. Eddie is a frail and asthmatic hypochondriac who carries his inhaler with him everywhere. His father died when he was very young, and his mother is domineering and constantly worries about his health. Later in the story, it is revealed that Eddie's asthma is psychosomatic. The pharmacist has been all along giving him water instead of medicine in his inhaler. The root of Eddie's problems is his mother, who has Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Although that's never stated, that's, ins that's inserted by Wikipedia and correct. Her constant worrying about his health has been a way to bully him into caring for her. When Henry and his friends break his arm and his mother tries to prevent the losers from visiting Eddie in the hospital, he finally stands up to his mother and tells her that he is no longer the helpless kid that she thinks he is. As an adult, he runs a successful limousine business in New York, but is married to a woman, Myra, who is very similar to his mother. He also finds the strength to defend himself from Henry Bowers, eventually killing him in self-defense with a broken bottle, even though in the fight his arm is rebroken in the same spot Henry broke it in a scuffle when they were kids. He bleeds to death in the sewers after his arm is bitten off, ultimately dying in the gang's arms. Michael Mike Hanlon. Mike is the last to join the losers. He is the only African-American in the group 
and lives with his parents on a large farm. He goes to a different school from the other kids due to his Baptist faith. Mike is racially persecuted by Henry Bowers, whose father holds a long-standing grudge against Mike's father. Mike meets the losers when they help him fight back against Bowers in a massive rock fight. His father kept an album filled with photos that were important to Derry's history, including several of Pennywise the Dancing Clown. He is the only one of the losers to stay behind in Derry, and thus the only one to retain his memories of the events of 1958 and turns into the town librarian. He researches Derry's history and it, and is the one who beckons the others back when the killings begin again in 1985. He is seriously wounded by Henry and nearly dies. He later recovers from his wounds, but like the others, starts to lose his memory of the experience. It was later revealed in Insomnia that Mike continued as a librarian and was the boss of one of that book's primary protagonists in 1993. Stanley Stan Uris. Stan is the most skeptical member of the club. He is Jewish and persecuted by Henry Bowers due to this reason. Logic, order, and cleanliness are deeply ingrained in his psyche. He is the least willing to accept that it actually exists and relies on logic more than anything else. As an adult, he becomes a partner in a large Atlanta-based accounting firm and marries Patty Bloom, a teacher. However, upon receiving Mike's phone call in 1985, he commits suicide by slitting his wrists in the bathtub and writing it in his blood on the wall. He chose death over returning to Derry to face the ancient terror despite being the only one to slice the loser's palms in a blood oath. It is also implied in the book that Stan remembers more about the children's encounter with it than the others do, sometimes commenting about the turtle and other events from his time in Derry, though he claims that he doesn't remember what those phrases mean. It can be implied throughout the story that he was a psychic to a mild degree, accurately predicting which job his wife should apply for, a higher sensitivity to its activities, frequent references to the other losers as to his ordered mind. I didn't read that that way at all, by the way. That's all Wikipedia. I don't agree. If you agree with that or disagree with that one way or another, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. I've never heard that interpretation before. Besides blaming it for George's death, Bill also blames it for Stan's death. Pennywise, a mysterious demonic eldritch entity. It is a monster of unknown origin that preys on Derry's children and humans every three decades stating it finds the fear in children akin to salting the meat. Among its powers is shape-shifting into a form that includes fear while killing the victim, normally assuming the form of a middle-aged male clown calling itself Pennywise the Dancing Clown, modeled after Bozo, Clarabelle, and Ronald McDonald. It can also manipulate people into doing its bidding, either by assuming a form most familiar to them or promising them their desires. Thus, Having control over what happens in Derry, many of the child murders it commits are never solved, as the adults of Derry either act as though nothing is happening or have forgotten about it. Its true form as perceived by the human eye is that of a giant spider that houses its essence, namely writhing orange lights named deadlights, looking directly into which can either kill a person or drive them insane. Its 27-year sleep cycle sees its waking periods mark the greatest instances of violence, such as the disappearance of over 300 settlers from the Derry Township in Fort, sorry, 1740 to 1743. In 1957, it awoke during a great storm which flooded part of the city, whereupon it went on a feeding spree, starting by murdering George Denbro. 
However, the Losers Club forced it to return to an early hibernation when it heavily wounded when it was heavily wounded by young Bill Denbro in the first ritual of Chud. As the story opens, it has reawakened approximately 27 years later and is first seen when the three bullies beat up a homosexual couple, Adrian Mellon and Don Haggerty. It killed Adrian after the bullies threw him off a bridge. When the adult members of the Losers Club gathered, it recognized them as a threat and resolved to drive them away through both illusions and by controlling Henry Bowers, the Losers' longtime childhood Billy, bully. Bill, Richie, Beverly, Eddie, and Ben managed to confront its spider form after it arranged to have Audra in its possession. It was finally destroyed in the second ritual of Chud with an enormous storm that damages the downtown part of Derry to signify its death. There are um, character breakdowns for Henry, Vic, Reginald, Belch, Huggins, and Patrick Hockstetter, but I'm not going to read them because we're over half an hour here, and I, I do want to get into the actual analysis. But if you do want to get character breakdowns of those particular characters, you can head on over to Wikipedia. So now I'm going to get into the actual analysis. The novel is organized into five sections, each section containing anywhere from three to six chapters, plus five interludes and an epilogue. Section 1, The Shadow Before. Chapter 1, After the Flood, 1957. The terror, which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did end, began, so far as I know or can tell, with a boat made from a sheet of newspaper floating down a gutter swollen with rain. The opening works on so many levels. First, the subject of the sentence is synonymous with the genre in which King has made his mark. With it being the climax to the first phase of his career, his final essay on the external monster, it makes perfect sense to begin with those two words, the terror. Furthermore, not only does it set the stage and pull into the novel the genre that King has become famous for, it provides information and mystery. What is the terror? And why does it not end for 28 more years? Right away, we want to keep reading. And lest we be lost in the abstract concept of the terror itself, King makes sure to focus us with something that we can all keep our minds firmly attached to, the visuals, specifically the paper boat racing through the gutter swollen with rain. In essence, we become Georgie, chasing after that paper boat ourselves. It's clearly in our minds. We know there's a terror. What is the relationship between the boat and the terror the narrator speaks of? We'll have to follow it to find out. When chasing the boat, the narrator begins to reveal information as it passes through the streets of Derry. We learn of the street names, the houses that are without power, that there's been a flooding. The setting, its time and place, is established. The world starts to come into view around us. We aren't just passive passengers in this story. We're active participants running down the street. We need to know. We need to follow. As we do, King establishes the town that will play such a major role in this book. If Derry, Maine was not fully realized, if we didn't have a sense of location, then this novel wouldn't work half as well as it does. King lures us in with the boat and begins to build Derry around us, caging us in, trapping us inside with the monster. Before I get to that, I want to acknowledge that in this opening, King reveals that he's provided a narrator to tell us this story. Right away with, as far as I can tell, it'll create a contrast of humanity with the inhumanity soon to come. Within the first page, the narrator again repeats that the conclusion will come 28 years later, 
provides a name for the owner of the boat, George Denbro, and his yellow slicker, so easy to visualize, the little boy in a bright jacket splashing through puddles after a boat. We learn of his brother Bill, who was linked to the 28 years. With this slight tease, King lets us know that there's a grand story of time and terror within the pages of this book, and providing us the briefest outline of these concepts and its characters so early on, it's almost as if he's building his mythology, like Bill is less of a character and more of a constellation in the night sky. By the end of the novel, we'll, ha we'll indeed have a rich mythology, with children warriors, magic, otherworldly dimensions, and extraterrestrial gods and monsters. But it begins with this boat and its boy, who are wrapped up in the mythology as much as the visual of Bruce Wayne's parents being gunned down are ingrained in the mythology of Batman. With Georgie, the narrator states that the terror begins, though we really know that the terror has existed since the dawn of time. So by stating that it begins with his death, King and his narrator are indirectly stating that in the entirety of the clown's existence, this is the time that matters the most, not necessarily because of the death of this boy, but because of its call to arms of the knights who will gather to slay the dragon. This opening, while set in an otherwise seemingly ordinary small town, is imbued with so much grandeur, King's mention of Fur Elise conjures the song, and it's difficult to block Beethoven's famous contribution to culture while the scene plays out. Its inclusion elevates the scene itself, pulls back the town even more, and gives it an operatic quality that supports the mythology that King builds. Page 5 includes a dense paragraph that hides a horrible truth within, and in this regard, the paragraph functions like dairy itself. The urgent water had cut a channel which ran along the diagonal, and so his boat traveled from one side of Witcham Street to the other, the current carrying it so fast that George had to sprint to keep up with it. Water sprayed out from beneath his galoshes in muddy sheets. Their buckles made a jolly jingling as George Denbro ran towards his strange death. And feeling, and the feeling which filled him at that moment was clear and simple love for his brother Bill. Love and a touch of regret that Bill couldn't be here to see this and be a part of it. Of course, he would try to describe it to Bill when he got home, but he knew he wouldn't be able to make Bill see it the way that Bill, Bill would have been able to make him see it if their positions had been reversed. Bill was good at reading and writing, but even at his age, George was wise enough to know that that wasn't the only reason why Bill got all A's on his report cards, or why his teachers liked his compositions so well. Telling was only part of it. Bill was good at seeing. And it continues. But here, we realize that this smiling, laughing boy with the yellow slicker, the jolly jangling boots, who's chasing the boat, is going to die a strange death. Furthermore, and more importantly, surrounding that bit of information is the description of the boy's love for his brother Bill, like I read. Again, the structure of this echoes thematically throughout the story, as the life that Bill will live will expand outward from the event of his brother's death, just as the text appears here. And more optimistically, George's death, as written on that page, is literally surrounded by love for his brother. And as we know from the conclusion of the novel that love equals life, King suggests that while he might die, he's still protected and lives on by the love for his brother. With this opening, not only does King provide a sense of scope to the town, the importance of Bill Denbro, the importance of the visual of that paper boat and the boy who chased it through the flooded streets, 
but he also prepares the reader for the time jumps that will go on to define the novel's structure. Right away, the scene flashes back to the origin of the paper boat, again stressing the importance of this boat. It's less of a boat and more of a symbol for childhood or of innocence, a floating palace that in the mind of its owner isn't made up of newspaper but thousands of pounds of steel, and it doesn't bob along a city street but the Pacific Ocean hunting for its enemies. It's the object of imagination. So when it falls into the sewer, yes, on one hand it's an external object that one character wants and another one has, creating conflict, but thematically it's the symbol of childhood imagination, hopes, dreams, and potential falling out of the mind of the child into the belly of the beast, and as King writes, sails out of this tale forever. So, so just so you know, everybody, um, this has been uh, five pages of notes, um, five pages of notes, and I've only read three pages in the book. So, <laughs> that's that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here. So Pennywise's legendary introduction is foreshadowed by the flashback in which Georgie had to descend the basement stairs, which works on multiple levels. First, it's simply a relatable fear that most of us have had as children, or even as adults. At one point, I think it's Insomnia, another dairy book, um, King makes mention of the thought that a velociraptor is hiding behind his furnace. Now, I know that when I have to go into the basement late at night, my mind can't help but conjure images of lurking terrors. And my go-to image is the crouching killer Bob from Twin Peaks who is ready for me to spot him before springing after me with a roar. So for King to include this section, it makes the audience automatically go, oh yeah! But more importantly, this is where King makes his thesis statement. Remember that this novel is his final essay for his thoughts on terror, on horror, on monsters and children. It's almost as if he said, all right, you think I'm the master of horror? You ain't seen nothing yet. By providing the ultimate nightmare experience, by making his argument, he needs to introduce it first. The image of the yellow-clad George Denbro was the hook to get the readers reading, but this section, the basement section, is where he sets the stage for the remaining 1,090 pages. He did not like the seller, and he did not like going down the cellar stairs, because he always imagined there was something down there in the dark. That was silly, of course. His father said so, and his mother said so, and even more importantly, Bill said so. But still, he did not even like opening the door to flick on the light, because he always had the idea. This was so exquisitely stupid, he didn't dare tell anyone that while he was feeling for the light switch, some horrible clawed paw would settle lightly over his wrist and then jerk him down into the darkness that smelled of dirt and wet and dim rotted vegetables. Stupid. There were no such things with claws, all hairy and full of killing spite. Every now and then someone went crazy and killed a lot of people. Sometimes Chet Huntley told about such things on the evening news, and of course there were commies, but there was no weirdo monster living down in their cellar. Still, this idea lingered. In those indeterminable moments, when he was groping for the switch with his right hand, his left arm curled around a door jam in a death grip. That cellar smell seemed to intensify until it filled the world. Smells of dirt and wet and long-gone vegetables would merge into one unmistakable smell. It was the smell of the monster, the apothesis of all monsters. It was the smell of something for which he had no name, the smell of it, crouched and lurking and ready to spring.
a creature which would eat anything, but which was especially hungry for boy meat. In this section, King sets up the dichotomy between children and the fear of the unknown. For what are children really but paper boats themselves, bobbling along currents that they can't control? With the basement section, King gives name to the horror, which is greater than just a clown in the sewer. It's a state of being. It's an emotional experience. So when Pennywise appears soon after in another dark recess, the idea of it is fresh in our minds, and the fact that it's a shape-shifting entity is a perfect ability to give to a character that's a walking symbol of the child's fully realized fears, now manifested and hungry. After George and Bill say goodbye to each other with dread-filled finality, the narrator returns us to the present, which is to say, Georgie racing down the street. And with the knowledge that he is soon to die, combined with the efficient character work on the hands of King, it makes the next scene an awful read. And what's worse is, through the effective use of the narrator, there's even more of a voyeuristic look at the events than normal. So in essence, we're there when it happens. And we don't do anything about it. So we, the reader, are just like all the other townspeople of Derry. And when it happens, it's quick. The act itself is unexpected. There's no description of Pennywise's face growing darker or interjection from the narrator that the following seconds were the last of Georgie's life. What happens is that the reader struggles with what they're reading, a clown in the sewer, and the reader knows that this must be the aforementioned strange death of George Denbro. But our minds are working hard trying to figure out what what's going on that we almost get lost in the pleasant conversation between the two because at this point Pennywise is charming and friendly so when King writes the clown grabbed his arm there was nothing that had led up to that moment it's terrifying it's sudden and all of the worst fears that you had for Georgie come true it's a horrifying death and the scene is so important to what makes this book work the image has become so iconic at this point that it's lost some of its potency and you know the scene if you close your eyes. If you've seen the movie, you can hear Tim Curry's voice. Yes, it's iconic because it's such a strong opening. And it, more so than any other before or after this book, sets the stage for the villain, in this case Pennywise. From a character standpoint, it's an incredible introduction. We get to know all we need to. There's something that is dressed as a clown in the sewers of Derry, and it eats children. With this opening, King creates a modern fairy tale. Maybe that's why this book resonates as much as it does. It's not just because there's a supernatural threat, because he's had supernatural threats by this point. And it's not because it involves children, because he's had children as stars by this point as well. It's the fact that the supernatural threat specifically targets children, I think is what elevates this story. There's a timelessness to the story, despite its very specific time periods. So it's not a mistake when on page 172, King includes a scene when the librarian is reading Three Billy Goats Gruff and writes, Most only watched her solemnly accepting the voice as they accepted the voices of their dreams, and their grave eyes reflected the eternal fascination of the fairy tale. Would the monster be bested, or would it feed? So not only is Pennywise the thing that each of us fears that's hiding just out of sight, the thing that could be behind the couch, under the bed, at the bottom of the stairs, behind the shower curtain, in the basement, in the closet. He's the fairy tale monster that threatens lost children in dark and scary woods. With this connotation, Pennywise shoots to the top of King's villains. Chapter 2, After the Festival, 
1984. King flashes to the present, and readers unfamiliar with the story may wonder how the events link together, or simply question the decision to jump the narrative. We'll get to the larger connective tissues in a bit, but King links the past and present together with Officer Harold Gardner, the son of the man who discovered George Denbro's lifeless body in 1957. One gardener finds a victim 28 years before, another gardener finds a victim 28 years later. While the scene takes place 28 years later, emotionally, it picks up right where we left off in After the Flood, which concluded with the death of Georgie. After the festival begins with the hysterics of a grieving and frightened loved one, not of Georgie, of course, but it doesn't matter. The effect creates a timelessness to the cycle. There will always be death in this town. There will always be grief and mourning. He who died and he who grieves are smeared together in the narrative, just as King smears together the timelines. It doesn't matter if it's 1957 or 1984, 1958 or 1985. The only thing that matters is the soul of Derry is cannibalistic and gets pleasure from ruining lives. In the opening to this chapter, King creates a sense of chaos. Someone named Adrian is dead. We don't know how. We don't know why. The reader has jumped 28 years in time. And before we can make sense of what's going on, King just starts throwing characters at us. The characters aren't essential to the story or even to our comprehension of the events of this chapter. The chapter could have very easily just been written with one or two cops, for instance, but he chooses not to do that. In the space of a page, King introduces Don Haggerty, the late Adrian Mellon, Officers Harold Gardner, Jeffrey Reeves, Chief Rademacher, District Attorney Tom Bullier, and suspects Steve Dubay, John Webby, Christopher Unwin. And the following pages we get Officer Hughes, Averino, and Morrison. This creates a sense of chaos that mirrors what's happening in the scene itself. The chapter is essential to the book, just as, if not more so than after the flood. With the first chapter, we're given our first introduction to Pennywise, the villain we can see and picture in our minds. But with this chapter, we're introduced to a more abstract villain of the piece, the one that you can't neatly visualize, and that's the town of Derry itself. The scene is so painful to read with its prejudice, its coldness, its character's unknowing limbs of a monstrous beast. King manages to capture the essence of the town unsurprisingly during a scene that has come off the heels of the celebration of the town itself. The brighter the light, the longer the shadow and the shadow of Derry is mentioned repeatedly in this chapter. Knowing perhaps that the homophobia of the 1980s wouldn't last forever, King uses this chapter to explain that Derry isn't a normal town, and its prejudice and hate don't understand the concept of progression. If Derry wasn't painted as rotten to the core with illiterate, hateful graffiti in the kissing bridge, drivers who not only don't stop to help residents in trouble but don't even turn to look, then rereading this chapter in 2014 or 2015 at this point might seem outdated. But Derry is no regular town, and the events that happen here are timeless in its awfulness. What occurs in this scene is just as Officer Paul Hughes thinks to himself, whether the boys knew it or not, to conclude the celebration of Derry's history, they erected a shrine to homophobia and hatred, unknowingly summoning the town's dark god and offering Adrian Mellon up as a sacrifice. Also, say what you will about the conclusion of the novel, specifically the reveal of the spider. Some people, myself included, love it. Love it. Others don't. Well, I'll get to my commentary on that later. You can't criticize King for his handling of the reveal, as he foreshadows the clown's true identity with a description of the thousand balloon strings looking like spider webs. This particular segment also includes the truth about Derry. 
clown took aid under there, he writes. I could see its suit brushing through those strings. Aid was making awful choking sounds. I started after him, and the clown looked back. I saw its eyes, and all at once I understood who it was. Who was it, Don? Harold Gardner asked softly. It was Derry, Don Haggerty said. It was this town. This is a chapter that was not adapted for the 1990 miniseries, and it's one that I hope shows up in the upcoming two-part film. Hell, you know, the way that I, th I see it, it doesn't even need to be in the film. I think it would be a stroke of marketing genius if segments like these, like the interludes, um, like Tales of the Missing, not necessarily necessary for the main narrative, showed up as short webisodes in the months leading up to the film. I think that would be a really good viral marketing campaign. It would be a good way to pack a lot of the history and tone of the, the, the book into the movie without having it be in the movie itself. Chapter 3, Six Phone Calls, 1985. This chapter concludes the first section, which served as a hundred-page uh, prologue for the novel. We've met our villain. We've met our setting. King has provided the tone and introduced the major themes. Now, it's time to meet our characters. Part 1. Stanley Uris takes a bath. The scene introduces us to the wife of Stan Uris, who sets the stage that something terrible has happened possibly as a result of his discovery of the books written by childhood friend Bill Denbro. The reader, of course, knows Bill at this point from the opening chapter, and his status as a Stephen King-styled author only grows his mythology. King again foreshadows events yet to come with Patricia's dismissal of Bill's books, Werewolves. It had been about werewolves. What did a man like that know about werewolves? This particular segment could easily be used as a criticism, for the editor's lack of insistence at cutting extraneous material. We have 20 pages of the life of Patricia Iris, her backstory of being excluded from prom because of her being Jewish, her fear of being laughed at. The scene goes on and on. Is it needed? No. It could probably get cut. But the time that King spends on getting to know her helps illustrate the lasting effects of the summer of 58. It didn't end that year, and the tragedies don't stop with the losers themselves. We see the ripple effect from the incident within the sewers in the summer of 1958. If you read this book as a metaphor for child abuse or post-traumatic stress disorder, this scene is essential in demonstrating the lasting effects from such trauma and the number of lives that such an event can impact. From a plot perspective, the scene is important to show that the losers have been imbued with some magic, regardless of the fact that it's ill-defined. Stanley has hunches that result with good fortune but these hunches are coupled with unconscious reminders of where the magic came from, as he ominously refers to the turtle, now the second time in less than 50 pages a turtle has been made mentioned of. After Stan received his phone call from Mike, King spends an excruciating six pages of Patricia opening the door to discover the body of her husband. We are firmly placed with her as she tries to open the door. We are filled with terror as we hear the dripping silence from behind the door. It's agonizing. And had we not spent as much time as we did with Patricia, the scene might not land with as much impact as it does. Also, what a brilliant ballsy move by King to put Stan's death up front. It casts a very dark shadow over every moment spent in 1958 and gives his characters more sympathy from the reader as we know that he might escape the battle, but he's a casualty in the war. By playing with the timeline the way that he does, King sacrifices a third-act death 
to propel the reminder of the events in motion. Rather, he establishes the very real threat of the clown. And though we weave in and out of timelines, just because we know that the remaining losers might have survived 1958 doesn't mean that they're safe. Of course, if there's going to be a death, it has to be Stan. As the one who couldn't accept the events of 1958, he was less receptive of the magic and incapable of heading back into battle with the other Knights of Derry. While examining this section, we need to talk about the importance of the perspective which foreshadows Stan's death, as he appears as a supporting character in Patty Uris's story. He's so detached and incapable of returning to Derry that he's already writ himself out of the narrative. Part 2. Richie Tozier Takes a Powder Along with the other losers, I'm going to speak at length about Richie and the character section of the review in a few weeks' time. But one thing that stands out here is that the battle between children and adults comes into focus for the first time. By which I mean that there are two worlds occupying this novel, both equipped with their own set of laws and rules by which to live. The rules of the adult force Richie to host talk shows for the late, uh, great Clarence Clemens while the laws of the child world require him to return to Derry, which is akin to the children of a C.S. Lewis book having to return to a nightmare version of Narnia. Because so much of this novel examines the relationship between child and adult, the difference between the two, I'll save any further musings for its own section later on in the review, again in a few weeks' time. But going back to this section, it doesn't provide much other than getting to know the character while hinting at the history of the town, which we'll get to experience for ourselves later in the book. It's incredible, though, how he balances the character work with the resurgence of Richie's memory, with cryptic descriptions of the house on Niebolt Street and being under the ground where machines thundered on and on. He crafts a rich history that forces you to keep reading to figure out exactly what happened in the summer of 58. Narratively speaking, by introducing us to the adults up front and hinting at their past, King takes us into their world. So by the time we actually experience the moments cryptically referenced here, we have our own memories of it, and therefore feel even more part of the story, as if we are the eighth member of the Losers looking back on our own childhood. Part 3. Ben Hanscom Takes a Drink Ben is then introduced to us as a man of routine, one built with a dependable nature. The visual of this chapter is strong from the winding map route given to the reader in the first paragraph to the image of sunburned Ben sitting by himself at the bar every Friday night. It's a, the very technical description of which roads to take serves to reinforce the qualities embodied by Ben, who is, after all, an architect. Ben, meanwhile, with his demeanor, seems as though in another life would be best friends with the Stan's stew. And I can easily picture that character on the bar stool next to Ben, neither really saying much but enjoying each other's company nonetheless. Does King wink at the audience when he writes of Ben? Who was looking under the weather? Maybe, as he writes, had a touch of the bug? There was a hell of a lively one going around. This has to be a wink from King. Ben's neighbor, whether he knows it or not, is Mother Abigail herself. King knew the significance of this town, so that line has to be a little bone that he's throwing to the reader. And from a Stephen King universe perspective, Wallace isn't the same exact world of The Stand, but an alternate reality, I imagine that Mother Abigail is just as good in this one as she is in that one. Might Ben have been drawn to her, she being a lighthouse of sorts through the cosmic multiverse? 
on the cosmic scales. She'd be on the same side as the turtle, after all. Did Ben, in some way, understand this, feeling the deep goodness that radiated out of this town? Like the segment Stanley Iris takes a bath, our perspective isn't on Ben, but on a different character through whose eyes we are introduced to Ben, and here, even more so in some ways... More, in some ways more so than Richie's and even Stan's chapter, do we begin to understand the profoundly frightening concept of what it means for these characters to go home. The bartender, Ricky Lee, thinks Ben has gone crazy, and I agree that he has, though it's only temporary. His body is so shocked from the flood of memories that broke down the dam of his adult rationality that he's now drowning in the past, surrounded by splashing, slimy things that live in those dank waters. Like Richie's chapter, we get snippets of the past, the letter H on his stomach, and something having to do with the silver dollars. What happened to the last silver dollar? As a reader, I know that I have to keep reading to find out. Ben is deeply, deeply frightened, and it occurred to me that I've never seen any Stephen King character possessed with such fright as our adult losers. Many of our previous characters have felt scared and pressed on, but not like this. It's an incredible way to connect to the characters, because after all, King has been scaring us out of our minds for years at this point, so for all intents and purposes, the losers are just like the rest of us. King teases the reader with a red herring, foreshadowing his own death, with Ricky Lee thinking that he's already dead, and he's just been visited by the ghost of Ben Hanscom. Had Ben died... This scene would have had profound weight. What it does is plant a ticking time bomb in your head that you're afraid will blow up any time, and it can. After all, we'd seen just what happened to Stan. Part 4. Eddie Kasprak takes his medicine. In a brilliant move, we meet Eddie's pills before we meet Eddie. The page-and-a-half description of the various pills could be criticized as King no longer having an editor who can rein him in, but I argue that in this case, it's in complete service to the character. Without knowing anything about the character, we know that he's one wound tightly enough to need these pills. And if we saw how Stan broke under the weight of the phone call, and Ben, a cowboyish figure who was shaken to his core, then how the hell is Eddie going to survive this ordeal? And at this point, we don't even know what the ordeal is. With Eddie's scene, we get the largest glimpse of the past, with a flashback as traumatizing as any sewer clown. One of an overbearing mother screaming at the PE teacher in gym class. The inner child in me withered while reading this scene, and its quick inclusion speaks volumes of who Eddie is, because Eddie is who he has to be. There was no other option for him with his mother being who she was. This section's pretty rough. Not unintentionally, mind you, but rough. The juxtaposition between scrawny Eddie and obese Myra is vividly visual, and King swings for the fences with his characterization of Myra being very broad and very large. I don't mean physically, and that's not a joke. Her fragility and preening almost push her into caricature territory. And if I were to read this now without the understanding of her role as a funhouse mirror to Eddie's mother, I'd argue that it's unnecessarily cartoonish. And it is cartoonish, but I believe that it serves the character immensely. Myra's weakness only highlights Eddie's own. We get the sense of their sexless life together and the sense of comfort but also get the sense that Eddie wants out because Myra is so nice, which shows the bottomless depth of empathy within Eddie. If she was as monstrous as his mother, it would make Eddie look incredibly pathetic, but Myra's kindness shows a compassion that runs throughout the story, and I believe King's choice to kill him, ultimately, is the best option of the losers for the maximum impact because of this compassion. 
And here we met Bev, whom I fell in love with in the late winter of 1992. Bev, who needed King to be as absolute best while writing her sad, battered life. I have a lot to say about Beverly Marsh, King's handling of her story, and her role in the um, controversial scene beneath the sewers in the summer of 58 in the character section of this review in a few weeks' time. But for now, let's just look at her introduction, which is simultaneously effective while problematic. Effective because, being told through the perspective of her abusive husband, Tom, we get to see how awful her life is, which will make her flight to freedom that much more fulfilling. But that said, the first descriptions we have of Bev are therefore given to us through the perspective of this character, who immediately references that he considers her best qualities to be her breasts, her body, her hair, with her personality described as weak. This is troubling to me because of the very low places this character will be taken, and I'm uncomfortable that King writes her introduction in such a way where the reader, experiencing the introduction through Tom's eyes, is complicit in her character defamation. Getting to know Tom is a foul experience. We endure ten pages of his squalid thoughts before their confrontation, and it was clever on King's part to place this scene while they had been sleeping because this is the moment in Bed's life in which she wakes up. The true Beverly awakening terrifies Tom, and despite the meek and nervous creature that had been depicted through his eyes, with Bev we see a strength that we haven't seen with the other losers thus far. On page 108, King writes, The belt hesitated, dropped a little. He stared at her, feeling that little bloom of uneasiness again. Yeah, she had looked this way before the big shows, and then he hadn't gotten in her way, understanding that she was so filled with a mixture of fear and competitive aggressiveness that it was as her head was full of illuminating gas, a single spark, and she would explode. She had seen the shows not as a chance to split off from Delilah fashions to make a living, or even a fortune on her own. If that had been all, she would have been fine. But if that were all, she also would not have been so ungodly talented. She had seen those shows as kind of super exam on which she would be graded by a fierce teacher. What she saw on those occasions was some creature without a face. It had no face, but it did have a name, authority. All of that wild-eyed nervousness was on her face now. But not just there, it was all around her, an aura that seemed almost visible, a high-tension charge which made her suddenly both more alluring and more dangerous than she had ever seemed to him in years. He was afraid because she was here, all here, the essential she, as apart from the she Tom Rogan wanted her to be, the she that he had made. In the pages that follow, her complete dismissal of Tom is so rewarding. She dismissed him so completely that he even begins to question the very fundamental nature of his existence, which works on multiple levels. One, it's funny that this blowhard starts thinking existentially slack-jawed holding a belt. Two, it's great character moment for Bev, who, without even trying, strips away his identity, again demonstrating a power that the other losers don't possess. And three, despite Tom reminding himself that he's Tom mother-effing Rogan, he's not Tom Rogan at all. He's a repurposed Alvin Marsh. He's only been allowed to access her life, which has gone on to define his, because she sought out a version of her father to continue the warped love of her childhood. Despite any concerns that I might have with this scene, King demonstrates that he's in control. 
as there is a perspective shift on page 113. After threatening to kill him, she throws the vanity on top of him, a move which asserts her dominance in the situation. And with Bev now in control of her life, we follow the rest of the scene through her perspective, not Tom's. Which is a great move on King's part. And when Tom comes for her again, she utterly defeats him in her own enjoyable and understandable bloodlust. Then, after reclaiming herself, King writes on page 117, And suddenly she began to laugh. Beverly Rogan sat on a low stone wall, her suitcase between her dirty feet, and laughed. The stars were out, and how bright they were. She tilted her head back and laughed at them, that wild exhilaration washing through her again like a tidal wave that lifted and carried and cleansed, a force so powerful that any conscious thought was lost, only her blood thought, and its one powerful voice spoke to her in some inarticulate way of desire, although what it was, what she desired, she neither knew nor cared. It was enough to feel that warmth filling her up with its insistence. Desire, she thought, and inside that tidal wave of exhilaration seemed to gather speed, rushing her onward towards some inevitable crash. She laughed at the stars, frightened but free, her terror as sharp as pain and as sweet as a ripe October apple, and when a light came on in an upstairs bedroom of the house this stone wall belonged to, she grabbed the handle of her suitcase and fled off into the night, still laughing. And then we have part six, Bill Denbro takes time out. Now for the second time we meet Bill Denbro, the only character we've met more than once so far. When we last met Bill, he was sick in bed that fateful fall of 57 and has been referenced since throughout the text like an idea to ward off evil. Bill is our central character and living in England is a fitting setting for the Arthur to the rest of the losers, Knights of the Round Table. And this has to be intentional on King's part. He even references Bill's life as a fairy tale. And if Bill is an analog for the author himself, then that would make Bill a king, wouldn't it? With this section, King presents incredibly important argument for reading and writing, one that has stuck with me for years, and ironically, one necessary to discuss in a podcast like this. Beginning on page 119, King exercises some demons of his own, as any English major uh, will be able to attest to. You know, King pulls from experiences and frustrations of time spent in stuffy lit classes whose professors are self-serving and spew analysis to their eager classes like a huckster revival preacher to their congregation. So on page 119, uh, King begins writing. Finally, he stands up in class one day after the discussion of a sallow young woman's vignette about a cow's examination of a discarded engine block in a deserted field this may or may not have been after nuclear war has gone on for 70 minutes or so the sallow girl who smokes one winston after another and picks occasionally at pimples which nestle in the hollow of her temples insists that the vignette is a socio-political statement in the matter of the early orwell most of the class and the instructor agree but still the discussion drones on when bill stands up the class looks at him he is tall and has a certain presence. Speaking carefully, not stuttering, he has not stuttered in better than five years. He says, I don't understand this at all. I don't understand any of this. Why does a story have to be socio-anything? Politics, culture, history. Aren't those natural ingredients in any story if it's told well? I mean, he looks around, sees hostile eyes, and realizes dimly 
that they see this as some sort of attack. Maybe it even is. They are thinking, he realizes, that maybe there is a sexist death merchant in their midst. I mean, can't you guys just let a story be a story? With Bill as a mouthpiece, King reasserts his enjoyment of the story existing as a story itself, and this is a scene that has replayed in my mind for years, all through college when I endured classes like the one mentioned above, and every time I sit down to read a King book for the purposes of this podcast. In a previous episode, I, I read a listener email from Craig who related, who related a story of his own life that was nearly identical to this and posed the question of what King might think of the analysis of his books. To answer that, I reference this scene. Now, I think that King's first priority is to write because that's what he was meant to do, but I think that it's to entertain. And, and there should, and I think that you know, he would say, like he says here, that that information part is built in. Um, but if it's to entertain, then why build a podcast around him at all? You know, why not just enjoy the books for what they are then? If it's an entertainment thing, why a podcast at King at all? Why not a podcast on roller coaster rides? Because entertainment might be the goal, but it's not the only result of the reading process. My argument for why a podcast like this should exist is because Stephen King is not a self-serving college professor writing on the coattails of literary greats. He's not a pretentious, talentless hack that wants to be the next insert name of classic author. Stephen King is an author who, to date, has professionally published close to 70 novels and 200 short stories in a 40-year span. He has sold over 350 million copies of his books. His name isn't just a name, but a brand. Unlike the wannabes in that fictitious college lit class, King became someone. Someone whose impact was so profound he played a significant role in entertainment for decades and inspiring generations of creators who have gone on to contribute their own work in their own mediums. And this type of success doesn't just happen to anyone. By breaking his paragraphs open and peering inside, by taking apart his syntax and holding it up to the light, by dissecting his use of imagery, tone, characterization, we're discovering why this author became king of the literary hill. There's a magic woven around his sentences, hidden in between the spaces of each letter on the page. And it's important to figure out how he cast those spells in the same way that it was important for scientists to study Einstein's brain after he died. Because Stephen King is important. Because he's a master craftsman in his field. Because I hope that we can all learn from what he does and how he does it so some listeners can be that much better at their own writing. And the rest of us have a better appreciation for the nearly 70 books and 200 stories that he's given to the world. Now, when Bill might say that a story should just be a story, it's immediately after King revisits an argument he presented in the introduction to Night Shift, in which he explained that the horror novel exists as a form of therapy to ease us through the difficult concept and ideas that we otherwise would rather avoid. After his confrontation with his professor, Bill finds the truth in his writing and begins working through the trauma he experienced as a child, trauma that's infused with, in the context of this story, literal magic, which in turn leads to a successful career as this universe's version of a mix between Stephen King and his talisman co-creator Peter Straub. And what a lovely metaphor for writing, that when you find your truth, you find your magic. You know, Bill's section is notable because that despite his celebrity status, it's the most grounded and healthy. 
Bill, more so than the rest, with the exception of Bev, appears to be able to manage the fear. After all, Eddie came down with vertigo on a train Richie threw up, Ben almost gave himself alcohol poisoning, and Stan killed himself. Unlike the other married losers, Bill rationally explains what he can, showing for the first time the only healthy marriage of the bunch. So we see what's at stake for Bill. Others might be leaving behind successful careers as they suit up to go back to war, but Bill is potentially leaving behind something greater than that, an honest love. The scene also presents the magic on display, with the scars on Bill's palms resurfacing like some magical signal. And Sing and King hints at the time the losers made those scars, when Stan came up with the idea and joked that he'd slash his wrists, a joke whose punchline came true 28 years later. Section 1 comes to a close with the first interlude. It's only fitting that we spend some time getting to know this town after all we got to know the other characters. And what better way to focus on the town than with Mike's introduction on page 139 to 140. Can an entire city be haunted? Haunted, as some houses are supposed to be haunted. Not just a single building in that city or the corner of a single street or a single basketball court in a single park. The nestless basket jutting out at sunset like some obscure and bloody instrument of torture. Not just one area, but everything. The whole works. Can that be? Listen. Haunted. Often visited by ghosts or spirits. Haunting. Persistently reoccurring to the mind. Difficult to forget. To haunt. To appear or recur often, especially as a ghost. But and listen. A place often visited. Resort. Den. Hangout. And one more. This one, like the last, is a definition of haunt as a noun. And it's the one that really scares me. A feeding place for animals. Like the animals that beat up Adrian Mellon and then threw him over the bridge. Like the animal that was waiting underneath the bridge. A feeding place for animals. What's feeding in dairy? What's feeding on dairy? You know... It's sort of interesting. I don't know it was possible for a man to become as frightened as I've become since the Adrian Mellon business and still live, let alone function. It's as if I've fallen into a story and everyone knows you're not supposed to feel less afraid until the end of the story, when the hunter of the dark finally comes out of the woodwork and to feed. On you, of course. On you. More importantly... This section shines a spotlight on the seventh member of the Losers Club, Mike Hanlon, the one who'd sacrificed his adult life to stay behind in Derry to keep watch over that dreadful town in order to gather the forces needed to combat it when it awoke from its slumber. The interlude is necessary in creating the rich tapestry of Derry. In Stephen King's bibliography, Castle Rock might be his most famous fictional town, but Derry is his most realized and lived in. And it would not be the case without these interludes, in which we are fed the secret and bloodied history of the city through Mike's diligent research. Not only do we learn about the city's terrible history, but of Mike, who is brave enough to continue his research even when warned by various old-timers aware of the 27-year cycle of death and terror. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks for sticking around. Um, but at one hour and 20 minutes... 
I'm not even getting started yet. So I'm going to end here, but make sure you tune in in the next week and the weeks ahead as I continue my running analysis on the remainder of the novel. Um, so next week, we'll, I'm going to finish up um, my you know, running commentary on the novel, and then the following week, I'm going to dive into the themes and the Stephen King-isms and the characters. And then the week after that, I'm going to dive into the movie. So like I said, we're going to be spending quite some time in Derry. So for those of you who um, love this book, you're in luck. Those of you who don't like it so much, sorry, everybody. Um, but please, I'm sharing all of my thoughts on it, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So please feel free to write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, on Instagram. Um, and if you haven't done so already, head over onto iTunes, like the page, write a review, and subscribe. Um, the more subscriptions and the more reviews that I have, um, it shoots the um, podcast you know, higher to the, the, the top of podcast lists, I guess. So, everyone, um, thank you. I, I hope that you enjoyed this first part of this multi-part look at it. Um, and I will see you here again next week. Same King time, same King channel. Stephen King. Hey, man, did you see that? His body hit the street with such a beautiful thud. Oh, what the